0: Hello everyone, your host, Jenna Valente here. Do you know why Veterans Day falls on November 11th every year? I'm going to pause for you to mull it over or shout the answer out like this isn't a podcast and I can hear you. Maybe if you're like excited about your answer enough, like it's like we're sitting at bar trivia, I'll like feel your energy and know that you're participating November 11th is significant because during World War One, at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, the fighting ended with the signing of an armistice, which really is just a fancy word for truce or an agreement made by opposing sides in a war to stop fighting. So you can consider that your little history lesson for the day. Especially if you have the day off and you don't know why Veterans Day is on November 11th. Now you learned something. That's great. And I've had the pleasure of speaking to a few veterans on this podcast, including my favorite veteran, my father, Peter Valente, who served in the Coast Guard for more than 30 years. Also, David Riera, who is a dear friend. He's an advisor to the Healthy Ocean Coalition and a regular guest, sometimes even co-host on this show. And David is a United States Marine Corps combat veteran. And last but certainly not least, Witt Jones, who served 28 years in the U.S. Army and is a graduate of the Citadel and now is part of the Wounded Nature Working Veterans Team in South Carolina. Wit was a guest on this show exactly a year ago today. Our conversation actually ended up being one of the most listened to Sea Change podcast episodes of the year. And so we wanted to bring back an incredibly fitting classic to honor the day and uplift the work that Wounded Nature Working Veterans does. I also encourage you to explore the show archive and listen to the episodes featuring David Riera and my father because they are two wonderful people who have lived remarkable lives, and I feel very fortunate to have the opportunity to know and learn from all of these people, especially about how service really is a mindset. It's something that takes dedication and sometimes sacrifice, and that's a mindset that lends itself well to both the military and to conservation. I think because it's centered around Working together toward something much larger than yourself. So with that, if you're listening and you're a veteran, thank you for your service. And if you're looking for ideas of how to continue to serve, this episode and the others I mentioned are great examples of how to put all of the skills you learn in the service to good use protecting the planet. And now... It is my pleasure to reintroduce Wit Jones and Wounded Nature Working Veterans. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to meet the most interesting and inspiring people living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines. So the day that you all will be hearing this episode is actually the day after Veterans Day, However, we are recording this on Veterans Day itself. So I want to start off by thanking the more than 19 million of you that are veterans out there for your service, along with your families and support systems. So some longtime listeners may know, because I've mentioned this on previous episodes, that I grew up in a military family. My father was in the Coast Guard for more than 30 years and he's now a veteran and farms oysters off the coast of maine in his retirement and um, for anyone that's interested in getting to know him better you can actually go back through my show archive and find the father's day special i did with him a couple of years ago to hear more about his experience in the service as well as the mother's day episode i recorded with my mom sharing her experience as the spouse of someone in the military so all of that to say is that I really appreciate all of you that serve and I see you, I'm here to support you as someone that has experienced firsthand the ups and downs, the sacrifices and the rewards that come with that commitment. Um, and at its core, that is really what this show is about, highlighting and celebrating people that serve, people that serve their communities, serve their planet the people that are out there taking action and supporting each other and standing up for the things that they care about and believe in to ensure that we have a healthy planet and healthy communities for generations to come. So our guest today is Wit Jones. Wit is the South Carolina Operations Director for a remarkable organization called Wounded Nature Working Veterans. Um, and the organization was found, founded by veterans and provides veterans, boaters, and community volunteers the opportunity to make an environmental difference by cleaning up ocean trash and marine debris and critical wildlife habitats. Wit, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining me today. Jenna, thank you. So for our listeners, this is the first time that Wit and I have actually verbally spoken to each other. Everything else has been over email so far. So Wit, I'm really excited to get to know you better before we dive deeper into the work that you all do with Wounded Nature Working Veterans. Will you bring me and listeners up to speed on some of your background? So really anything you feel comfortable sharing to give us a better idea of who you are and what makes you, you.
1: Sure well Jen, I, th- I want to say first thanks for the intro and thanks to you and your family uh, for serving. Uh, I, I think uh, it, i I've always said uh, you know military service, uh, the business we do it's, it's really it's about family, right So even those that are serving in your organizations uh, in uniform and the family members spouses, children, and uh, uh, so it really is a family business so uh, so thanks, thanks to you. Uh, I've just recently retired from the United States Army after uh, 28 years active duty and uh, did some time uh, prior to going on active duty in the National Guard in South Carolina. So it was a little over 30 years total time. Um, I joined in high school uh, as a a National Guardsman. Uh, 17 years old and uh i just kind of was drawn to serving so this was this was in the late 80s we're drawing down at the end of the cold war the cold war is kind of closing down uh things are changing globally uh but i was still compelled i just felt uh um just kind of drawn to service as a young person and um my father was a marine uh my uncle was a marine that's how my dad met my mom um because he came home uh with my uncle. And, uh, so I was just kind of drawn to service and, in about 15 or 16 years old, uh, one of a member in our community saw him in uniform, got really intrigued, started asking around and, and figuring out that, you know, there was an option for me to join early. Um, and I was the only one in my high school that joined, uh, the service. It was a small, small town high school, but, um, so I, I I was just drawn to the service early and uh, and and so I just I just went with it um, I just followed kind of what what I felt I wanted to do and wasn't sure at that young age where I would end up uh, and and many of us that that join uh, this all volunteer force you know join for whatever our various reasons are never knowing where we're going to end up and never knowing if it's a a lifelong decision or not. And and that follows most of us through about the first six to ten years, and then next thing you know, it's it's you start looking at the second half of a career, and you know it's now you're you know you're you're stepping into the twilight years of your service, and so uh, it's been a great life. Um, I met my wife in Germany on my first assignment overseas. Um, She's a dual citizen, German American. Uh, We have two wonderful children, Um, and for most of our service years for some medical reasons for my youngest daughter, uh Charleston, South Carolina has been our home. Uh and so I I'm from South Carolina uh and I've always been drawn to the coast. And uh so this this has worked out really well. And so a few years ago I found Wounded Nature by chance uh at a boat ramp uh doing a cleanup and I drove by and said, What the heck is going on here? Right? All these people uh, construction dumpster full of debris. Everyone's all muddy and dirty, but having a big grin on their face because they accomplished something awesome. And so I took note and I wrote down the organization's name and found them on Facebook and, and started engaging uh, with them a little bit. And I got roped in pretty quick as a volunteer. <laughs> um, and uh, we were beginning to do some of the boat removal and dem- uh, demolition at the time. And it's hard work in the summer chopping up boats in a parking lot, and uh, the founder and I just hit it off really, really well. And so after some time, he asked me to be a, a member of the board because I was still on active duty, and I did that for half a year until I, uh, yeah, half a year until I retired, uh, and then I went full-time as soon as I was able to go full-time.
0: Yeah, and is, is there anything in particular that drew you to the Army as opposed to any of the other branches like, you know, Navy, Coast Guard, Air Force?
1: So I first started uh, inquiring with the Air Force, honestly. Uh, I wanted to fly. Uh, there was an Air National Guard base not too far from home. So I thought, hey, I'll join the Air National Guard as an enlisted person and then, you know, kind of go to college and get a degree and You know i'll be a i wanted to you know be an f-16 pilot or something really cool like that uh but i was too young they didn't have an option to join at 17 um and and do summer training and still be in high school so as we were leaving that base uh, there was a army helicopter uh organization there the south carolina national guard and we popped in and i met my first army helicopter pilot uh, face to face and talked to him for a while, and uh said, Hey, this is pretty cool. so I called a, my Army National Guard recruiter and said, I want to do that um, and yeah, so the Army drew me because at, at my age it was the the service I could get in, and then I realized that i could you know the Army actually has more planes and helicopters and boats and all you know more planes than the Air Force, you know more boats than the Navy uh it's such a huge service so there's so much opportunity in the army that that that's kind of what that's interesting
0: i don't think i realized that that the army had more more planes in the air force more boats in the navy (laughs) it's a fun fact
1: yeah well we like to say that i've never (laughs) counted but you know we like to say that
0: Um, um when i was preparing for this episode i saw that you also went to the citadel is that correct yeah, so um this got me on a whole like I was got me into this nostalgic place of reflecting back to um I lived in Annapolis, Maryland for a few years and I worked right across the creek from the Naval Academy. And you know, the Naval Academy is right downtown in Annapolis, so it's nearly impossible to miss if you're there and um it's this like stunning campus. So I used to walk around it or use their track from time to time and whenever I was there, I would wonder like what that experience is like going to a military college. And I think I, you know, that was at the forefront of my mind at the time because I was not so far removed from my own undergraduate experience. And I was in grad school while I was down there. And um, it was just really easy to compare like my experience to the experience of the people I saw in uniform and doing drills and like the actual students there and um, while I was preparing to speak with you I I noticed that and maybe I'm totally striking a wrong chord because I'm bringing up a rival school but um, it definitely brought back some of that like imagery and the curiosities that I have um, and was just wondering what your experience was like at the Citadel what is it like being a student there
1: So that's, uh, it's interesting as, uh, as I was preparing for this morning, I'm sitting here drinking coffee from an Annapolis, Maryland, uh, coffee cup with a blue crab on it because I was just there, I was just there a few weeks (laughs) ago, uh, with work with Wounded Nature. We did the, uh, international sailboat show as an education outreach. And I, it was, I've been to Annapolis as a, when I was in college, uh, it's sort of one of my roommates was from Maryland. Uh, and so we, we did some cruising around in the summer and, and went out to ocean city and pass through and and saw the Naval Academy. Um, but, but this year I actually got to like, stay downtown. we rented a home and, you know, blocks away from the Marina. And so, and I, I like you, I, you can't miss the, the midshipmen, uh, in town, right. They're everywhere. Um, and in the afternoons, after class and duties are over, you see them out running in town. And so, uh, it, it is a, and it's a big iconic part of Annapolis. Um, and now Annapolis is, is relatively small, it's historic. Uh, Charleston's a little bigger. Uh, so the Citadel is, uh, as Charleston has grown, uh, you know, the Citadel's, it, it's landlocked downtown. It's, you know, it's, it, and it's, it's, uh, it's very much a part of Charleston. Um, and so I applied to two colleges. Uh, the Citadel and to Clemson, and I applied to Clemson University because my brother was there. Um, I thought about West Point because uh, I was already in the Army National Guard, but I didn't really want to go to upstate New York. Uh, and And I'm a true Southerner at heart, so I really just set my sights on going to the Citadel. Uh, and I applied for a an Army scholarship, uh, received a three-year. Didn't keep it, unfortunately, because I was an engineering major to start with, and that was a tough first year. Uh, But uh, my experience at the Citadel, you know, it's a unique place, right? I mean, everyone's college experience is unique, and uh, we are different from the service academies in that the Citadel and five other schools in the country are what we call senior military colleges. They're not service academies, so. Uh, a service academy, you know, Air Force Academy, Naval Academy, Coast Guard Academy, um, you know, they are. Um, you're on a track. You're going to seek. a You know, you're going to commission in the service. Uh, there are some exceptions, right? Um, but at at the senior military colleges, the students live in a military environment, uh, but it's a state school it's a state university so we're very unique in that regards and uh there's only uh really three out of the six senior military colleges that are most similar uh virginia military uh, norwich university and the citadel all have the core of cadets is what they call it it it's a residential experience so you live in the barracks and you're run on a 24-hour cadet schedule um and, and you live that Year round, so um, uniforms, barracks, parades, inspections, all those things. That's that's full time. And some of the other service academies, they have corps corps of cadets, but they are in a, a mixed university. So um, think like Texas A and M, if you're familiar with their how you see the let's say the football games, they got the corps of cadets in uniform, and then Texas A and M is a huge university that they're all a part of. So it's a little bit different. Um, in in that those first three I mentioned are are strictly uh, you know, exist around that core cadets where some others are parts of larger universities. Um, Now, the Citadel does have, uh, you know, day students, we have veteran day students, we have uh, undergraduate and graduate evening programs, a huge online uh, degree programs in the last uh, five or 10 years. So uh, they do have other educational opportunities, but, um, you know, really it's about the the, the undergrad core cadets. And I, you know, I, I would just say my experience, uh, there was, uh, it's, it's a tough place to go, uh, and it's a great place to be from. I have lifelong friends that, uh, that, that, I, you know, they're as close or closer than my family and my, you know, my own brothers. Um, I, we all call ourselves brothers and sisters, uh, that, that come out of that place and, um, you know, it, it, but it's not an easy place to, to, to get through. So. The freshman year, the attrition rates are high. Even today, um, I say high. It's but it, it's, it's tracked, and it's it's not everyone that shows up there makes it through uh, their first year. And then I have noticed that really the second year is kind of tougher than the first year in some regards because you're no longer a freshman where everyone's even not just the upperclassmen but the the rest of the college the administration has focused on you, you're now a sophomore, second year, you're you're now expected to, you know, study and do all these things on your own when you just had all this control over you, but you don't have any freedoms that that they say the juniors and seniors and the upperclassmen have and privileges. And so sophomore year is a really tough year for the students. And I would say in probably many of the universities, I'm sorry, the service academies, or the senior real estate colleges, because you're kind of just a, a ghost. You're a nobody, right? Nobody, <laughs> nobody kind of cares about you. So you got to kind of find your own way, uh, and and you know learn how to really be a college student. Because as a freshman, you're just told where to be, what to do. Uh, and as long as you can do it and function, you're going to be okay. So, um, and then later, you know the 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 third and fourth year in the in the experience. The model if you will the leadership model there is to you know have you learn to lead right so as a junior you're um in charge of you know say a squad or a platoon of cadets and you have responsibilities and then as a senior they're really expected to to you know develop their own leadership uh capacity and styles and, and be ready to go and serve but the big thing is the Citadel and the Senior Military Colleges, service is not compulsory. So it, as I said, it's the states, they're state schools. Um, and only at the Citadel, at least only about 30 percent of the cadets uh, join or, or go into the service. And, and that's a lot of people find that striking. And they're like, why would you even think about going to a military college if you're not going to go in the service? And that's a pretty legit question. I would ask the same thing because I, I, I knew what I wanted to do. Uh but for a lot of folks that go there, it's about either challenging themselves because you know they want to see if they can make the cut uh for some it's a family tradition um some have been told it's the only place I'm gonna pay for you're going <laughs> you know so um it everyone has their own reason to to be there but uh you know and, and some folks uh, some folks are are there and you're like you're from wisconsin or michigan or like you know some what we in the south call a far-off place and you have no connection to any of this around here why are you you know what drew you here and that's 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 a question we all ask sometimes but um i you know additionally to to having been a student there as in my capacity as an army officer i worked there twice so uh i as a as a young captain uh, coming out of my first command time, and I mentioned I referenced my my daughter with some medical conditions. We got assigned to Charleston, and I worked at the Citadel for four years as a uh, ROTC instructor. And that was, you know, the other side of the fence. You're you're now in the the administration, if you will. Um, and and that was that was very unique to to see the college from the other side. Uh, and then I came back in 2016, uh, very similar setup with, you know, needing to do some further medical stuff with our daughter and uh, was not quite yet ready to retire from the Army, even though I had over 20 years. And, uh, and so we came back in 2016 and I worked an additional four years until I retired there. So uh, I've seen that place. Uh, I, well, I've spent most a lot of my adult life on that campus. So, um, you know, it's a really unique place.
0: Yeah. And I I think, um, what a unique experience that is first of all. And then, uh, also you're segueing right into the next thing that I was curious about is, um, I know you touched on it a little bit just here and then at the beginning of the episode, but, um, just wanting to hear a little bit more about your specific role with the army and what you did like day to day or throughout your career.
1: I don't. So I, uh, I joined the Guard, National Guard, as an a enlisted helicopter repairman, uh, crew chief is what they call him, And uh, was fortunate enough to, when I went through ROTC at the Citadel and through the Army, or the Army had, they call it the accessions process, where you're put in a national order of merit list and you compete nationally for what jobs are available based on your qualifications. A lot of it has to do with your academic GPA. Um, and, and where you stand and we all get a score, you know, everybody in life, you know, we don't like to sometimes think that we keep score, but, but we do keep score. And so, uh, and so based on that, I was able to, I was selected as a army aviator. So I was, I was sent to Fort Rucker to flight school, uh, right out of the Citadel. Uh, and that, you know, spent a, a year and a half at Fort Rucker, Alabama, you know, learning to fly. Some of the most advanced machines that the 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 military has uh and and left there as an apache pilot uh and and was stationed right away to germany uh, for uh for three years and that was uh you know the early experience was uh, a little bit surreal uh, i got i gotta say i wanted to go to germany uh i was i was kind of drawn to uh, at the time, you know, this is right after, not long after the Berlin Wall had fallen, uh, we still had forces stationed on the uh, intra-German border. And, uh, I, you know, I was I was just drawn to that whole thing. I, I just was, like, fascinated by it. And I was like, you know, if I'm going to go, I'm going to join. I want to be there. Like, in the 90s, that was, late 80s and 90s, that was still where we thought, you know, the hot spot in the world was and and it may still be we don't know but uh so i was drawn to that and i I, you know it was kind of surreal you know getting on that plane and and going to germany and at the time if you recall it you know this was uh you know the conflict in uh, bosnia was ongoing and when i called my gaining commander right my i was you know i was lucky enough to have an assignment that told me exactly where I was supposed to go work, which is not always the case. Sometimes you show up at a a place in the military and they're like, well, you know, we're not sure where we're going to put you yet. And you know, the personnel, the the, the HR side of things, they got to figure out where you need, where you're best needed. I, I was, I had pinpoint orders knew exactly where I was supposed to go. So I called the commander and he said, Hey, pack all your army gear for the flight. That's all I can tell you. Like, don't ship it through the transit system because it can take six weeks to get to you. Pack everything you can. I said, hmm, something's going on. So I get there and within, I didn't have time to find a place to live. I stayed in some transient on base, uh, kind of like a little hotel. Uh, and we were in the field within two weeks. And I had just graduated flight school, you know, uh, had just learned and gotten qualified to fly a helicopter, and next thing you know, we're in the field flying helicopters and shooting aerial aerial gunnery, which is the coolest thing. One of the coolest things that that we can do uh, in training, right, is uh, to go out and actually employ the helicopters. And we're doing all this in preparation for a uh, a, a deployment into Bosnia. And this is before the Dayton Peace Accords were signed. I mean, they, it was still nasty, and as a young officer i was like whoa this is the army right this is what i signed up for but it was so surreal to actually be doing what i thought you know at the time you know we i thought we were going into you know the hot spot um it turned out that peace broke out thankfully uh and I, I did deploy to bosnia a couple of times and that that time i was in germany but it was not you know what we thought it could have been which is thankfully uh it you know things have settled down but that that was my early from my early experience and um you know I at that point I, I did meet my wife in that assignment and we're married in 1998. so we're just over 23 years now um and I came back to the states um for a required school and an, a next assignment that's how that's how military life works you you understand that Jenna uh and I was fighting tooth and nail to stay in Germany. I was like, please, you know, trying to figure out a way to stay longer, another year, maybe. But you know, army wasn't having it. So uh, I went on to Savannah, Georgia, at Hunter Army Airfield. Hunter Army Airfield, and you know, just kind of went, through, you know, just following the normal career progression. But at that point, I wasn't sure, you know, is this is this the life for me? Got a new, you know, I'm got a new new family and there were there were several times in that you know six to seven year window you know the first six seven years i was debating you know leaving the service and then when our youngest daughter was born with challenges medical challenges it it cemented in my mind i was like hey i've got the army was amazing and it's not always the army right it's the people that made the army amazing for us so every direct leader i had um all the way up right made sure that we were able to take care of our family uh and and got us quickly moved to Charleston you know I mean just amazing you know direct leadership taking care of people and that's that experience changed my direction I think more than anything as, as far as how long I stayed in the army uh and and what you know what I, I you know we're all kind of hard charging and, and um you know I was a little more caustic as a young officer right than um than I am now right We all grow and mature, but some really a lot of it's based on your personal experiences and what happens in your life and how you react to it and so that that experience and 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 future experiences along the same lines really shaped who I became as a as a uh, as a leader and um, as a man, right? So it just changes who you are based on your life experiences. And, um, you know, I, I got to have, I was fortunate that, that the army, which sometimes you think the big green machine, but the army really took care of us and my family and, and, uh, and set us on the direction to kind of where we are today.
0: You know, that's something I really connect with too, in terms of the sense of community. Um, and that, when I was listening to you share your experience, it really brought me back to, um, you know, times where we didn't always live on base, but there are a couple of times where we did, and just how much everybody took care of each other. And, you know, like my, my dad would go, um, they when we lived in Hawaii for a little bit, and he would go out to patrol the equator, and they'd go out to all the other Pacific Islands, and he he'd be gone for, you know, a month, two months, however long their trip was. And uh my mom had the me and my my brother were very young at the time, but it was everybody that was on base was checking in and, and looking after each other's kids and helping out, making meals. And I think that made all the difference for us and our family um, along the way is just seeing how everybody sort of rallied around each other and and um had each other's back which is a really uh life-changing thing to have happened when you know you're seemingly uprooting every so many years and and you know putting your roots down in a a new place and new people new faces and trying to find a sense of community and to have people rally around you like that was uh was pretty amazing
1: yeah right i in you know in in 2014 my uh, we had we had a, a pretty serious medical thing going on, uh, 2013 into 2014, and I actually had to be out of work for six months. Now I took a, I burned up almost all my vacation days, but prior to burning up my vacation days, you know my unit made sure I had the time. They administratively made sure I was straight to, to to be where with my family. But at the same time, you know as we started getting out of the hospital and and back to home, you know I didn't have anything to do with it. But you know, there was like every other day, meals dropped off. You know, either folks from my community or uh, folks from work, you know, from the unit. It was just, it just happened completely without any, any input from us. They were like, hey, what, you know, what you have any foods you don't like to eat or or you can't eat, you know, any restrictions, and and food just started appearing, and people just every couple of days checking on us. And, um, you know, and you're right, the the community, uh, we, we we like to say, I like to say. Uh, and I, 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 I gotta admit, I stole this from, from someone way, way smarter than me, but, uh, army business is family business. That's, that's, as, as I got to the tail end of my career, I really learned, you know, to, to that, that is so true. And, and in, in my last capacity at the Citadel, I was able to influence a lot of families because I was, so I was the executive officer at the, at the, um, Army ROTC battalion there, and and other than West Point, it's us, the Citadel, and and VMI. In the past five or so years, have been going neck and neck for who's the largest uh, ROTC program in the country. And so you know, it just and the, and the score is based on how many lieutenants did you commission in a given year. So you know, it changes year to year. We we're you know, but uh, you know, if you're commissioning 100, 110, 115, 130 uh, officers a year, and you've got you know all the classes below them, all the way you know, four classes below all their families. You know, just like in a regular army unit or any other military unit, right? Life happens, right? So, um, you know, a family member gets ill, uh, a student has an issue, whether you know, every the, just anything you can imagine. And I, I was kind of the catch net for all of that in, in my capacity. and. And I really, really realized that, you know, the, even though it seems like, well, you're just dealing with cadet business, right? It's, you know, is that really Army work? You know, is, is, is that where your talent should be used? And I realized that absolutely, because I'm actually influencing, you know, for generations to come on, you know, will this individual student and, and then later that student's family and then their potential offspring. like. Right? their experience early on makes the biggest difference. And I got to experience that as a young officer when the army system and, and my leaders took care of me and it was my time to pay it back. And all I asked of those that said, well, that, that's so awesome. What can we do? I said, when it's your turn, you just pay it forward, right? You, you, you remember this because everyone always needs help at some point.
0: Absolutely. It's never forgetting the human being behind the work behind you know anything that you're doing, it's you're you're working and interacting with people that have complex lives and a lot going on. you never know what someone's going through. Um, so being that person that is supportive and maybe you maybe that just look that can look so different depending on the situation too. it's sometimes it's just simple as listening to somebody and sitting there and being with them and showing up. and um, I think it's really important to remind ourselves of that from time to time and, that sometimes showing up for people and being a support system doesn't really take a whole lot of your own effort or time. Um, so I think I'm, I'm just really appreciative of you for bringing that that point up. And I know that we've been talking about your military career for a, a little while on the show, but I a lot of that is intentional. With the guests that I have on, I like to spend a good chunk of time getting to know them a little bit better like as a person and then hearing about your experience with your career because there are a lot of early career professionals that listen to this show and then lifelong learners who are just curious to hear somebody else's experience and expertise and um, before we we shift to talking a little bit more about wound nature um, for anybody out there that's listening that might be considering a similar career path to yours, what advice do you have for them, um, for anybody that might be considering joining the Army or, or going to the Citadel?
1: So I, I would just offer that, it you know, there are people I've come across in my nearly 30 years that were in the service and they might have been in it for the wrong reasons. So just I just always, if you're going to, put on a uniform, make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. And, and, and maybe that reason might sometimes be because uh, I, I need, you know, because there are some great educational programs through, through all the branches of service, and, and that might be the right reason, but don't let that be the only reason, right? So if, if it's about, uh, you know, say we have this amazing post-9-11 GI bill that provides great opportunity for, for life advancement, and, and that can be a part of a reason, but it can't be the only reason. If you're only in it for college money, it might not be the right thing to do. Um, and, you know, really just the, the second piece would be just to, to always be true to yourself and, and know who you are and why you're doing what you're doing. Because uh, life in the service is going to be challenging. Uh, and, and as, a you know, I was, I was a enlisted in the Guard, National Guard that's a little bit different than being enlisted in on active duty. Uh, and it, 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 it's not always an easy life and, and just know that, you know, it you know, if you stay through, uh, the first enlistment and, you know, get a little more season and, and a little more, uh, time in service and rank and pay that, you know, life does get better. Um, and those that go, uh, even while you're young in the service there's amazing opportunities to work on your uh professional qualifications uh you can start your bachelor's degree while you're on duty you know you don't have to wait till after you're out to go to college right you can do it while you're in the service and and a lot of it is is uh there's tuition assistance and so i would just offer thirdly to maximize every opportunity you have if you do join to, to better yourself so that when you eventually we all hang out the uniform, it all, it all goes into a, a, a foot locker somewhere and you, you look for a second part of your life. And so just maximize the opportunities you have while you're in the service to, uh, to better pos- position yourself for, for your, for your life after the service.
0: Yeah. So speaking of life after the service, will you tell me more about, um, wounded nature, working veterans and, and what drives you all? What is your mission?
1: So our mission is uh, to clean and re- rehabilitate uh, the critical wildlife areas that really others cannot access. And so we go after uh, first. First, it started out as you know the trash and debris that was in tidal marshes and barrier, barrier islands. Uh, we also go after uh, the treated wood and lumber and, and busted up docks, and then the biggest one we've had the most impact with is abandoned boats and large debris. Um, and, and so really started, and, and you, you did a really great job on in the intro of kind of hitting, you know, founded in 2010, uh, started cleaning areas that, you know, the founder, uh, Rudy Sosha, realized that really no one was cleaning up the areas where wildlife wants to be. So we have, uh, up and up and down our coast you know our our beaches are funded or there's there's tourists there there's tourist tax dollars there's municipalities that have uh, capacity and, and some of them are direct funded to to keep the the tourist areas clean uh and there are a lot of volunteer organizations and and other nonprofits in the space <clears throat> that do uh beach cleanup right beach sweeps uh but no one's going into the tidal marsh. No one's going in like, I just can't stress like, there's no one doing it, uh, that we know of. And, uh, so really that was where the focus was first was to get in there and just clean up areas that had never been cleaned. And after we go in and clean, it's, it's a, you know, you can go back and revisit and we've done this. You go back and look a couple of years later and you're like, Hey, this place is still really clean. Right. I mean, there's a few things, but you know, it, it never stays clean because humans live on the earth and we are a very litter, not lit, I don't say litter. We we have a lot of debris associated with human activity on the earth. Right. And it's not always intentional, but you know, that stuff gets into areas where, you know um, it, it's, it impacts shorebirds, marine life, you know, shellfish, uh, you know, sea turtles, all those things. And so clean it up, the the tidal marshes and Bear Islands was kind of where we started. Then, uh, as we we're you know, and this was before I was involved, but as 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 they were moving about the 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 coastlines and bear islands, kept finding a, a, a large number of uh, what we call orphaned crab traps, right? So a commercial crab trap is a, a you probably know from your time in Annapolis, right? but many don't it's a it's a big square uh, metal wire cage has some little uh interest ways for uh for crabs to get in and, and there's a little bait area and they sink they have rebar heavy rebar on the bottom and they sink to the bottom with a float on a rope and there they wait and and they do their harvest uh and that's a very successful business right and 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 i'm friends with some local commercial crabbers but Those things do have a tendency, or they can, you know, break away, the rope gets cut by a boat propeller, um, they drift away, and they, over the years, and we're talking decades, these things accumulated way out on the hinterlands of the coast, like the Bear Islands, uh, or in the marshes, and and, uh, were literally killing wildlife. So, a bird gets entangled, uh, a sea turtle can't cross over, I mean, all kinds of, you know, so started going after cleaning up crab traps. And in about two years, with the help of volunteers, some other partners, uh, the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources helped out uh, once we started and they removed 2,800 or more crab traps from the South Carolina coast. Now, when you go out, you rarely see one. And if you do see one, we pick it up, but it's not the major problem that we used to have. Um, Then, Couple of years later you're like hey what's happening with all these abandoned boats because they're everywhere right just littering the coastline and the marshes uh and so wounded nature being uh we're not we we are and it's clearly in our mission statement you know we are a remedial action organization we we don't wait to figure out what we should do we don't research the problem uh and and spend tons of money on it or advocacy and education we Take what we can get resources wise and apply it to the mission. And so, in about 2018, 2019, yeah, about 2018, you know, addressing the abandoned boat problem and, and really just took action and took every boat we could that was cleared to come out and rented space in a parking lot at a marina uh, here in town. And on Saturdays and Sundays, volunteers would show up uh, with water bottles and hand power tools, sawzalls, really reciprocating saws and dismantle the boats and manually put them into dumpsters. Uh, And in that first year, I think there was over 60 done. Then now we're looking into, we we just hit 108 in about two and a half years. So we're at 108 boats removed from the waters in in two and a half years, which is a a major accomplishment. We just hit our 100 boat milestone, which was a big one. and, you know, that's, that's where we focus. That's what we do uh, year round. Uh, we, we do the cleanups, you know, three or four times a year um, and we're having impacts there, but we we kind of realized, you know, at, in every nonprofit, I would, I would think, you know, the mission changes and, and, and a little bit over time. And so we've gone from, you know, really heavy, just mostly focused on marsh cleanup. Then we did crab traps for a long time. And now we spend a lot of our time and energy on abandoned boats because we see that it has a, a large environmental impact when we when we get our work done and get these boats out of there.
0: yeah, I think that was the most surprising thing to me when I was reading about your organization is the abandoned boats so um you know i'm I'm based in new england i'm I'm just north of Portland, maine, and we definitely see the um abandoned lobster traps crab traps fishing nets that like they call it ghost gear which basically just keeps fishing until someone pulls it out of the water um but you know we don't as far as I know we don't see a lot of abandoned boats so that that was a really interesting piece for me to learn about is that being an issue uh where you all are located um, so definitely learned something <laughs> um from from you all there
1: yeah we started a Uh, boats out tried we're trying to work building a boat salvage directory uh, on our website and as I called around and and we put some online feelers out to get people to reach out and give it you know and I started calling around I talked to some folks up as far up as Boston and said hey you know these are marine salvage folks and I'm like tell me about what do you see in your your area you know what's y'all's issues with abandoned boats and he goes uh I get paid to remove boats man I, I don't Like we don't have that because the enforcement um, from you know whatever state department or uh, you know state agency or or local you know there there's serious repercussions for boat owners to do that uh, to abandon a boat, and so I get paid to remove these vessels before they become a problem because the repercussions are swift and and significant. So every state's a little different. Uh, I would say that every uh, uh, every state does have some. You know, every coastal state does have, they may not be that many, but uh, they're, they're out there. Uh, and South Carolina has some laws that address the, the thing, address abandoned boats. But for, for many, many years, they really weren't enforced. Uh, and really nothing was, you know, nothing was being done. And, and we're partnered with our, our Department of Natural Resources, um, the law enforcement side that have, you know, the regulatory authority and, the, and uh, you know, enforcements for a lot of things, but, but they, they are a very diverse organization in, in what they have on their plate on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. And so, uh, you know, the same folks who are enforcing game and fishing and game regulations are, you know, uh, and, and dealing with, you know, boating safety and things like that. They're also the same folks that would, ha- that are, they're having to deal with abandoned boats and tracking them and so it's a really tough thing to do uh we, we we have uh worked in florida and florida's got you know so much coastline more than anywhere else and, and all the way down to the keys uh the florida keys and so it's it's a tough thing to do with the number of boats that are especially in the south southeast uh with where we're we're, we're pretty much year-round boating areas um i don't have to winterize my boats so uh, you know we can pretty much boat year round, and so, and, and you got all the great migration down the East Coast and intercoastal waterway down to Florida in the winter, uh, and then back up north in the summer. So the East Coast is is a a big transit area for boats, <clears throat> and many of them, uh, you know, either there's someone falls on hard times, um, there could be you know boat damage, hurricane storm damage, etc., and and sometimes the boat just ends up. You know stuck and the owner doesn't have resources to remove it or uh you know like we you know everything has a usable life right and 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 a value and when some of these older boats uh reach the end of that uh, kind of that fiscal usable life it's not worth the investment to repair it just like a a, a, an automobile uh, then you know, sometimes, unfortunately, people walk away from them and they'll pull their registration numbers off and uh, and walk away from it. So that happens. And, in, in, you know, there's there's a whole list of ways and reasons a boat can become abandoned. We're just focused on getting them out and then trying to prevent more. So
0: I um I should amend my previous comment, too, because I was thinking I was like so honed in on coastal New England, coastal Maine. But an experience that I just had like a month or two ago while visiting with my aunt and uncle, they they built this really amazing little cabin way up north in Maine near the the Quebec border. And I went up to spend the weekend with them and we were exploring, you know, all these back logging roads, and they were showing me these cute little hikes. And and I mean it feels like you're in the middle of nowhere. And so you walk in down this path to this this big lake or an incredible river and you are you're literally the only people there however there are like a hundred canoes there and I didn't realize that this was a this was a problem in Maine but they were educating me about that um while I was up there because people that like to hunt and fish will bring their canoes in but they don't want to to lug them around with them every time they go in and out so they'll chain them to a tree and you know some of them are still active and registered but you see like there are just some that have not um been been used for years and we're just sort of falling apart so i know the state actually has a program where i think they're going to go in this year and if they're not claimed or registered they're going to haul them out of there but um i like totally spaced on that when i made that comment (laughs) and it's like oh we we do have that issue it's just inland
1: it, it, it's a similar thing, and, and uh, you know, I, I mentioned our number. You know, we we, we are keeping score because we we think the impact we're having is is, is significant. So you know, 108 boats. Uh, we early in the year, I was like, hey, we might hit 100 this year, you know, and then we started through the summer with a new project and some new partners, and have really uh, met and exceeded that, and and you know, are on pace to potentially uh well you know it it you know maybe hit 115 120 i don't know um you know there's still 6 weeks left in the year almost and and uh at the pace we're going in some of these areas we're getting uh four to six out in, in a couple of weeks um so what i'm talking about is we uh and, and this is a little bit about how the the boat removal you know nonprofit you know and and state agencies and other partners work so you know we are uh you know we exist and survive on on generosity of you know other people uh via donations uh some some corporate goodwill support uh through you know through some of their charity arms um and and some of our our sponsors that which you can find on our website uh and you know and and really that's enough to keep us going Uh, as an organization, but we can't, we could never do what we have done with boats without the support of partners. And I say, you know, local towing agencies, uh, dredge companies, um, you know, some some demolition folks that that handle, you know, so uh, we are only able to do what we do through great coordination and partnerships. So um, in uh, North Myrtle Beach or Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, We started this summer, late summer, with just a coordination meeting uh, with some concerned citizens and a a, a local um, law enforcement DNR officer to uh, really just talk about what is happening or not happening in in various parts of our state. And you know, really, we just kind of came in and said, "Well, all this is possible. Basically, that's you know, we can do this. We we as a team and a community can do this." And so. Lined up the right partners, and uh, one in particular is a, a dredging company uh, that has donated just I can't I don't even know the number of of, of dollars of uh, worth of dollars that he has donated to support. Because when I say donated, it's it's his barge with his equipment and his crew all day long getting boats out right, and he's he's doing it because it's the right thing to do and he he can right as a big business he can afford to do it and he knows it's the right thing to do and so he's doing it we just said let's do it and that's kind of how wounded nature works it's like we see the problem we you know make sure we're legal and we line up the resources to get it done uh you know however it however it happens right it's never the same and that's why i love this job so much and it reminds me of being in the army cuz no days ever the same no no abandoned boat is ever like the last one you did no cleanup ever goes without its problems and so it's it's super interesting to do what we do um it you know and and, and no day is ever the same and so you know we've got some things we do repetitively uh to to do but every project's different and so that's 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 and every time we do this it's it's you know a different cast of characters, maybe some of the old, you know, same faces, but in a different mix. Um, and so it's, it's really awesome to do uh, to work and, and know that we're making a, a huge environmental impact. And you think, you know, every time we do a marsh cleanup, we'll, we'll pull uh, a 20 foot construction dumpster full of debris. Uh, and, and that thing, you know, that's maybe eight thousand 8,000 8, pounds ish, depending on what the debris is uh, you pull one boat out, with a, with a, you know, one thirty five foot sailboat with a, with a lead keel that weighs four, you know, four or 5,000 pounds. You know, we, we kind of estimate our, our impact because it, it's such a large scale and, you know, 108 boats, you know, we cl- think we've clearly pulled more tonnage out of the marine environment than, than anyone else in the country.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that's something that I admire about your organization is the emphasis on on building community, and not only that, but a community with a purpose and a mission. Uh, will you talk a little bit more about, like, your thoughts that the power of community can have, and the importance of supporting veterans?
1: So, yeah, I, I, thanks for that. I I think, uh, like we said, with you know, uh, some of your experiences in your family, you know, with being in the military, and mine, um, you know, veterans in in the community. I, I think a lot of folks uh and this is veterans day that we're recording this so i you know i i always am appreciative of of you know gratitude for service members uh and but but i think I, I want folks to know that that at the local level right that's where things happen that's what we do with wounded nature uh that's what veterans that are struggling need that it's it's someone to do something it's not uh you know and it's not always about your checkbook it's not always about your bank account you know to to donate uh because because it's either you can either some folks will be they'll they'll say thanks or they'll want to write a check but sometimes people need someone to do something to actually do something and so locally here in charleston and i know it's in other places um you know we have a lot of energy going into um you know For um, kind of feeding feeding homeless veterans or those that are um, you know housing challenged that maybe are living in hotels, et cetera, you know there's some great organizations doing that, and and those people are doing it as as volunteers, right? They're they're and they're working uh, and and providing a list every couple of weeks of say, hey, here's some items we need. And they assemble food boxes and they go deliver and they're doing it and they're just, they're just doing it right. They're not waiting for someone to do it for them or saying, Oh, wouldn't it be great if somebody, you know, made sure that, you know, these folks weren't hungry. They're just doing it. They're doing the work and that's kind of how we operate too with winter is We just do the work. Um, And that's what I think on, on veterans issues um, is the most impactful. And every state has a, Veterans Department or Veterans uh, at the state level, right? An agency. Um, some call it their, you know, State Veterans Affairs or Veterans Department. And if folks want to help, start there. Call them and ask, "Hey, I live in 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 so and so, and you know, I see. I think I see this problem. What you know? What can I do to help? Is there an organization here locally that I can work with?" That's that's the most impactful. Is just do something. If you see an issue, take action, do something.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And I think a lot of people can, you know, it, it almost stand in their own way or feel helpless because there's so many problems or problems can seem so large that um, reminding ourselves that what, you know, what can we do? What's our sphere of influence? Who do I know? Who can I help? And just approaching it that way. Not every, you know, one of us can or should take on all of the problems of the world, but we can all do a little bit and that makes a big difference.
1: Every veteran is, is different, right? And every every like we said, every person joins the service for their own reasons. And and you know, the veterans are very very individual, right? Everyone's, you know, but but all veterans, you know, there's another in in uh idea out there um that you know veterans can be broken humans, right? We're not broken humans. Um, We have as much baggage uh, as anyone else and our experiences are different. um, And we're a very diverse, uh, you know, community that, uh, you know, that that really, you know, people think about veterans issues, like we're, we're our own thing. Well, we're not our own thing. We're, we're living (laughs) there. There are more veterans around you on a daily basis than you ever have any idea. Right, there's there really are, and so. But some. For whatever reason in life, need more assistance. Right, they like or or just, you know, someone to. Sometimes it's a kick in the butt. Right, hey, get your stuff together, man or woman. Right, and 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 be better. And so sometimes you know, just like everyone else in life, you know, we get down on ourselves, and um, sometimes we need a nudge, and and that could be the thing too, is somebody just checking in and saying, hey, you know, what do you need? Or uh, I think you're okay. You need to do better because sometimes we need that advice too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's like any other issue in the world. There's no ever like cut and dry, black and white way to approach it. It's there's so many layers of complexity with each individual and each person, and everyone's life path is different. So um, that's a that's a great thing to bring up in that um, what what one veteran may need and what, what type of, I mean, this is just beyond veterans too. It's like everyone in your community and people that you know and you care about, it's every single person support looks different to them. Um, So sometimes it's just taking time to understand like what, what is the appropriate way to show up. Um, And then on the flip side of that too, maybe considering what are, what are, if you're somebody that feels like you could use some support what are some ways that you are open to receiving that um, is a good practice too.
1: Right on. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of folks that, that uh, both veterans and non-veterans that are, that are maybe a little too proud to ask for help. And, you know, it, I, I'll tell you from my own personal experience, right? Like sometimes we all need somebody to talk to and 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 you know i i'm a proud uh man husband father and veteran uh but i don't always have all the answers and sometimes i need somebody to to, to listen to me uh whether i just have to vent or whether i need some true mentorship and advice and so it you got to be humble enough to to realize that you know it, we all sometimes need someone uh you know to bounce ideas off of um and, and, uh, and, and, and sometimes deeper issues, right? So but we all have to be humble enough to, to realize that.
0: So what's next for you, Wallet? Do you have any other projects or cleanups coming up that people can either follow along with, get involved in, or help support?
1: Sure, so uh, every March here in Charleston, we do a really big uh, cleanup and oyster reef lay in, in collaboration with uh, South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. This past year, and we worked through COVID too, right? We, we did a COVID safe cleanup and, and uh, an oyster reflay with mask as required if you were within six feet. Uh, but we kept our, our work going. Uh, we, in March of, of 2021, we were trying to hit a thousand oyster bags uh, in a day. Uh, we, we fell just short at 950. Uh, if you're a, a statistician, we round up. And so, <laughs> but uh, we, we hit 950. Uh, and these are, these are recycled oyster shell collected from restaurants and, and uh, in the community. They're, they're collected at local points. The Department of Natural Resources, with, through their own volunteer program, sorts and cleans and gets the trash out of them, and they bag them in these little plastic uh, net bags. Uh, we lay them on a, uh, a low-tide beach on, on these islands where uh, we're trying to filter the harbor water and so uh, we, we laid 950 oyster bags under the supervision of the Department of Natural Resources with our volunteers and our Wounded Nature coordinates the whole thing. We bring the volunteers, we line up all the boats needed to, to transport the oyster bags out and, and then transport the people out and lay into the, into the mud and muck. Uh, at the same time, I've got another operation going on to clean one of these islands nearby in the harbor so we, it's really our big harbor cleanup every year um and that's going to be i think the third week of march i think our, i think the date's the 26th of march but that's if anyone's local um you know and wants to travel down to charleston to do that it's a fun day you get muddy dirty wet uh we do it rain or shine uh small craft advisory or not we're going out um and we're going to get the job done so that's that's our big annual uh local thing uh we are continuing with the abandoned boat removal right and we're based in south carolina so that's where a lot of our impacts are but we're nationally chartered 501c3 we with the right resources we could do the same thing up and down the coast and that's where we're really that like vision wise and what's next like we are we're, we've been in existence for a little over 10 years. We've made the cut as a nonprofit. We've been vetted by numerous multinational corporations that are, to this day, financial supporters on, on whatever scale they can be that keeps us running. But really to be a breakout uh, and to, to take this thing to the, to the level it could be and needs to be is, is we, need, we, we need more resources, right? So when I say resources, I'm talking capital. Because we have, boats are expensive, right? We have our own boat requirements. We have trucks that have to pull them. At some point, if we're going to grow, we have to have more staff. As in, I need someone in each state that's coastal that can do the coordination and the work. And so we could grow that way. And that's what the vision is, is to grow, uh, staying true to mission, right? We're not growing to have banquets and fundraisers and corporate retreats we're growing to expand in every state doing the same thing we're doing here in the southeast or in south carolina so that's that's kind of how we see it uh and we're only limited by we're only limited by the resources uh and the capital flow so we've already got some folks uh that we work with in florida that are veterans there's one in particular that would be a me in florida right so we've already got this person identified but we we aren't able to expand there yet because we don't have the capital to do so and to to make the same setup we have here in South Carolina. So that's that's where the vision is is to grow uh really southeast first, then nationally and I can see long range vision, right, where this could be something that could be international, right? We could have coastal cleanup in in multiple countries. So that's that's kind of where the 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 dream vision is right there.
0: Yeah. So if someone's listening to this and wants to get involved, what are some ways that they can uh, reach out and contact you or follow
1: along? So the easiest way is uh, via website. So we are at woundednature.org. All our contact info is there. Uh, We're also on all the socials, right? So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, So I'm most responsive on Facebook via the messenger. Someone wants to reach out to me directly. You can go to our Facebook page and send a message. I'll get it. Uh, and, and that's, I I'm on the other socials, but I'm not that active on, on those. We have a, a, a social media person that, that takes care of our content there. Um, and as far as getting involved, right. Locally in South Carolina, you know, volunteers, uh, we do a big cleanup, as I was saying in March every year, we don't have a shortage of volunteers. So I don't need people helping me find volunteers. That's that takes care of itself with our messaging, and and we're on uh, Meetup is where we kind of our coastal cleanup page on Meetup is where we kind of recruit our, our local volunteers uh, for for our bigger things. Uh, really, as as I was referring to earlier, our, our biggest need is 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 financial support. That can be done via the website uh, for individual contributions. If there's someone out there that has a, a a larger uh, potential gift or donation, then they can reach out to me directly uh, and we can figure that out. So that's um, that's the easiest way to get involved and also to help us out.
0: Great. And so I close out every show by asking my um, guests a series of the same questions. It's sort of like a lightning round, but um, I guess without the lightning, because I'm definitely not timing you. Um, so we'll start with, what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we're faced with?
1: i think our our human impact on 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 the planet right so the 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 human impact on the ecosystems uh and I, i'm uh i'm talking about you know the there we're losing our green spaces uh just with human advancement and human growth and expansion uh we're we just lost our our natural environment the pristine places and there's there's land conservation groups there's water conservation groups but that's that human impact on the environment as we lose our green spaces, coupled with human activities' impact on the environment. So, and I'm talking what I see and deal with, which is the 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 amount of of stuff that we consume and touch and generate and create, all has to go somewhere. And I think the impact we have in uh, you know taking care of the earth and in our environment. Uh, you know, to help kind of balance out and remediate some of the human impacts is where we kind of come in. Um, but I think that's our, you know, just human activity, right? And and well, that some say, well, that's not really an answer. With you know, we we all got to exist, but I think we could exist in different ways, right? And and uh, what we what we choose to spend our dollars on, you know, drives what companies do. And I think that is where we can make the most impact. So, um, you know. Everyone's all about it, right? The single-use plastics, um, you know, mylar balloons. You know, what is the biggest threat to, you know, to to the planet, Um, or you know, or where are we having an impact that we could remediate? And so, but there are so many. There's so, and so. I I just categorize just it's 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 human activity and where can we make a change uh, that is more eco-friendly, environmentally friendly? Uh, We should do that at every every step we can and individuals can can make that difference by where they where they spend their dollars and cents
0: and what motivates you and energizes you to continue doing this work
1: so i i get to be outdoors um i work with great amazing people and i know every time we do something we are making a huge difference and it's it's the micro level right when i pull a sailboat out of the marsh um I'm pulling out fiberglass, I'm pulling out uh fuels, I'm pulling out lead batteries, I'm pulling out oils um and once that thing is removed that 30 to 40 foot of of uh marshland is now you know going to going to regrow and regenerate and 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 marine life will move back in and I know that I know that I see that uh every time we go out and do something uh, and so that's that's what motivates me and keeps me focused is uh you know, cause the problem's not going away and really no one else is doing anything about it. So, um, you know, we, uh, you know, we're, we're all motivated by doing that. And I've got volunteers that are always ask me like, Hey, I want to go out and do, uh, i want to go out on some of these boat removals and, and, uh, we kind of sometimes have to say no, uh, you know, cause it is, it's, it's hard, it's dangerous, it's long days. And so, uh, we're like, you know, sorry, sorry. It's it's really just gotta be a couple of people that do this work. So, um, but, you know, that's, that's what motivates us is just know when we're making an impact.
0: And this next one is a bit of a two part question. You can absolutely answer it in any way that you see fits, but what is the best advice that you've ever been given? And then on the flip side of that, what advice do you have for our listeners?
1: Yeah, this is uh uh interesting, so best advice I think I've ever been given, I'll give it in a, in a two part answer. So as a young man uh as I was entering the military service my grandfather uh who did not serve in the military but he was in if anyone's a history buff of our US history he was in the uh the CCC right so post depression uh, a lot of these civil works projects like for example like Hoover Dam a lot of state parks were 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 constructed by the CCC so um but as I was entering the service he uh you know his advice to me, which is still remember, you know, he, he, he just said, Hey, you know, be quiet, you know, do, do what you're told, uh, and, and do the best you can at everything you're going to do. Right. So that was, you know, 17 year old me, uh, going into the army. Uh, and then later in life, I had a a great mentor, um, that, you know, through a lot of career choices, uh, you know led me to work for this this person and, and and his advice was just to be decisive to be decisive so don't wait too long to make a decision right so you you know probably know what the thing that you need to do is so just be decisive and get after it um and sometimes you'll make a decision that might be the wrong decision or maybe not the best right decision but you can't be paralyzed by indecision. You have to take action. So be decisive is is, is some of the best advice I've been I've been given. Um and I think turning it around, uh, you know, I never thought of myself as a sage uh mentor, um, but uh I guess I'm getting to the age. Uh but you know I think we, we hit on a lot of the things in this conversation that that are important to me, right? That are who I am and and a lot of it was you know that that whole piece about army business is family business and and everything we do in life is a human endeavor and that everyone in our lives has their own business to take care of and their own baggage and that you don't know what's going on between someone's ears and you might think you do but you don't you don't know the people that you think you know sometimes uh, and you always have to appreciate what might else going on in someone's life. And And like you said, you said it best, you know, sometimes you just got to show up for people. And I just, the advice I can give is just make sure you're ready to show up when you're needed because someone's going to need you. But you can't think it's always about you. Sometimes it's about the other person.
0: Well, Witt, I am so grateful for you, for your service, for you joining me today on this show. I learned so much from you, and I'm just just so appreciative of this moment that we've got to share together. And um, please pass along my thanks and appreciation to your colleagues that you work with and all the volunteers with Wounded Nature. And I look forward to following along with Um, everything that you all do and being supportive however I can um, moving on into the future.
1: Thank you, Jenna. I really like what you got going here with uh, Sea Change. Appreciate the time.
0: Thank you so much. And I'd um, like to also thank the listeners. Um, If you like what you heard and would like to hear more of this show and others like it, please find us wherever you listen to podcasts. We are the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, Likes, rates, rates, reviews are very much appreciated if you are somebody that enjoys social media you can find us online on twitter we and instagram we are coastal news 365 and on facebook we are the american shoreline podcast network if you'd like to connect with me individually you can find me on instagram at jenna valente and twitter at Yenna benna Um, so let's chat online about our beautiful coastlines